0: I hope you brought God's Word with you today, your copy of the Bible, and if you have, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with verse 16. If for some reason you were not able to bring your copy of God's Word with you, you should find one in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I read from, the New American Standard Translation of the Holy Scriptures. Today, of course, the message is another in our series of following the theme of if, and we're looking at different verses of scripture throughout the Bible that include the word if in those verses, and using those as a basis for the message that we're sharing from Sunday to Sunday. Today, of course, has to do with receiving or entering into eternal life, and the title of the message, as you see on your bulletin, is, If You Want." To receive eternal life. The New American Standard that I read from uses the word enter. If you want to enter eternal life. That was the response of our Lord to a young man who came to him with the supreme question of what he needed to do in order to inherit eternal life. And, of course, we see as we look through the verses of Scripture his misunderstanding of what one uh, receiving eternal life is all about. It's not what you do to receive eternal life. It's what has been done by Jesus on the cross uh, when we repent of our sins and trust him as Lord and Savior. Then we enter into and receive the gift of eternal life. But let's look at it in Matthew chapter 19 and also on your bulletin you'll discover That the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record this encounter and meeting of this young man with Jesus with this important question about receiving eternal life. But we're focusing on Matthew 9, beginning with uh, verse 16. And someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, But with God, all things are possible. Well, I want to focus in for just a moment, Uh, going going back to the verse there uh, in verse 17, where Jesus, in response to him, said, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. For if you wish to enter into life, and is that word enter, The word enter, of course, referring to the entrance into a room or entrance into a relationship. If you were to go back to the Gospel of John, in fact, if you'll just keep your place here at Matthew 19 and turn for just a brief moment to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. In the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is telling uh, about the, the parable of the Good Shepherd, that he was the Good Shepherd and the role of the shepherd in uh, shepherding the sheep. But you'll notice in the first two verses of John chapter 10, what Jesus said, truly true, I say to you, he who does not what? Enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Uh, So that would perhaps apply to this young man who comes to Jesus and ask what he needed to do in order to attain eternal life. And, Jesus didn't use the exact words, but he simply was saying to him, well, if you try to get into heaven by any other means than that which has been provided for you, then you are like a thief and a robber. Verse 2 says, but he who enters by the door is shepherd of the sheep. And then if you were to skip down to verse 7 in John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus identifies himself as the door or the way one Goes in order to enter the kingdom and to enter heaven. Verse 7 says, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He says the same thing again in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters in through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture." So clearly from the words of Jesus to support what he's saying to this young man that he and he alone is the way to eternal life. And if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven and to enter into eternal life, then it must be through the door that has been provided for you. And Jesus is that door. You enter in by accepting Jesus, trusting Jesus, relying upon Jesus, committing yourself to Jesus as the only way of salvation. And if you will do that, then you will experience and receive the eternal life that Jesus Christ has to offer Now, eternal life. He's interested in eternal life. And again, the scripture reminds us that all of us are going to live for eternity. Now, not all of us have existed. There was a time when nothing nor anyone existed but God. And of course, God created the first man, Adam and Eve. And so down through the centuries, we've all been conceived and born. And so we are human beings and God has created us and uh, we have not always existed. There was a time when you did not exist, but when you were conceived and born, you you came in to, you became a living being, a human being, and you are going to live forever. From now on, there will never be a time when you will not exist. The question is, where will you spend eternity? Will you spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus, or will you spend eternity in hell? away from and apart from the Lord Jesus. Yeah, if you don't believe this, then again, take your Bibles, keep your place here. I'm coming back to Matthew. All this is introduction. This is this is the front porch. We're gonna move into the living room in just a moment, okay? But in John chapter 10, uh, excuse me, John chapter five. John chapter five. John chapter five, look at verse 28 and 29. These, these again are the words of Jesus. John... 528. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear this voice or his voice, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is predicting and saying with assurance that. Uh, there's coming a time when everybody who has died And whose bodies are in the graves Those bodies are going to be raised And uh, you, you will get back into your body And you will stand before the Lord And if you have done good And by that we mean of course in the scriptures That you've trusted Christ Who is the good shepherd and so forth Then you will be resurrected to life eternal And you'll always spend uh, eternity with Jesus If you have not then you will be resurrected and you will spend eternity away from and apart from the Lord Jesus. Those are not my words. Those are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're all going to live for eternity and all throughout eternity. The question is where? With Jesus or without Him? And so here's a young man who comes to Jesus. And uh, of all the people who's recorded in the Bible who came to Jesus this young man is the only one who went away worse than he was when he came. And uh, yet he had a lot in his favor. The Bible describes him as a young man. Uh, how young, it doesn't say he's just a young man, probably in his late teens or early 20s. The Bible says in Matthew nineteen twenty-two, the young man came to him. Luke tells us in his gospel that he was a ruler, a ruler Questioned him. Now, by ruler, uh, it is uh, implied that he was maybe a leader of one of the synagogues. And uh, so he, he was a person of, of importance and of position. Uh, he had good morals because uh, Jesus said to him, You know the commandments, keep them. And he said, Well, and, and he said, Which ones? And Jesus listed some of them. And he said, Well, I, I've kept all those ever since I was a child. So he's evidently a person of good morals. Uh, He's rich. He's a leader, a ruler. He has good morals. Um, uh, He's interested in spiritual things because his question to Jesus is, uh, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? So he's interested in spiritual things. Uh, He's he's eager because Mark tells us in his gospel uh, that this young man came running to Jesus Uh, He was humble because Mark also tells us that when he uh, got to Jesus, he fell to his knees. So he bowed and bowed his knees to to Jesus. So he was humble and and he was discerning. Uh, He realizes that Jesus is different from all of the other teachers. And so he says, well, good teacher or good master, um, what must I do? So he, he understands that there's something different about Jesus than all of the other rabbis the word "master" means rabbi or teacher, and so he recognizes that there is something uniquely different about our Lord, and he is courageous because he comes in broad daylight, unlike Nicodemus, who came to Jesus, who came to Jesus at night. And there's nothing wrong with whether the hour is the night or the day, but but Nicodemus came to Jesus at nighttime. It doesn't say so, but it may be implying that Nicodemus likewise was a ruler. Of, of the Jews and uh, if it were known that he was seeking out Jesus then he would uh, have been in a lot of trouble with the other rabbis and leaders of the Jewish faith so he chose to go to Jesus at night doesn't mean that he was any less brave or interested than this young man but here is a young man who is not necessarily concerned about what other people think about him so in broad daylight out in public view this young man comes to Jesus with this very important question, what he needed to do in order to obtain or enter into eternal life. And so there are about six things that I want to develop with you briefly this morning as we think about what one needs to do in order to enter or receive eternal life. We need to begin with the character of God, because this is what Jesus did with this, with this young man. Uh, he, this young man comes to Jesus... Uh, he says in verse 16, Teacher or rabbi, master, what good thing shall I do that I may etern- obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. So, what Jesus says in response to this young man's request is, Who's God? Notice that when this young man addresses him He simply says master, teacher You're a good teacher, you're a good master You're a good rabbi Jesus said "Well, remember And and I understand in the commentators that I've read after uh, Said that the the rabbis did not like to use the word good In reference to them They just were called master or rabbi or teacher But to call someone good That was a, a term used exclusively of the Lord, of God God only is good. And that's what Jesus says to him. Why do you call me good? Why are you raising the question about goodness? There's only one who is good. I am God. I think this is our Lord's way of of trying to get this young man to see that Jesus was more than just a man. He was more than just a rabbi. He was God in the flesh. And evidently this young man had not come to the point where he had realized who Jesus really was. And so he says... Who am I? Who is Jesus? Now, Jesus did not say, I am not God. He simply asked him, why do you call me good? If I am not God, don't call me good. But if I am God, then yes, do call me good. And so he was trying to get this young man to realize that he was more than a man, more than a master or teacher or whatever. He, he was God in the flesh. And that's what we must come to the conclusion about Jesus if we are to be saved. We too must realize that, that Jesus is not just a man, although he was all man, but he was more than that. And he was not just God an all God. He was the combination together. He was God-man, both God and man, not part God and part man, but all 100% God and at the same time, simultaneously, 100% man. He was the God-man. He was God in the flesh. And in order for us to be saved, we must come to that conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And in doing so, we recognize His holiness. To say that God is holy, the word holy literally means to be different from or separated from. Moses, you remember, when he stood at the burning bush, was told by the Lord God Almighty, take off your shoes. The ground on which you stand is holy ground. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, as recorded in the sixth chapter of his prophecy, Said that he went to the temple and he caught a vision of the Lord and these seraphims who were flying around and 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 crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The word holy could have as easily been translated different and different and different because God is different. He is there's only one. There are not many, and uh, so. Peter had this same experience. You remember in the in the Gospel of Luke, I believe it's the fifth chapter, when they were out in this boat after having fished all night, and Jesus said, "Cast your, your net over to the side." And when he did, he the the fish just filled up the net. And, and he had trouble, he had to have help pulling the net into the boat. And, and it suddenly dawned on Peter, this I'm standing in the presence of God. And he falls down in the boat and kneels before Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O oh God. You see, the closer you get to God, the more conscious you become of your own sin. That's what happened to Isaiah. That's what happened to Moses. That's what happened to Peter. That is what happens to us. As we approach Jesus, we realize we are standing on holy ground and it is God, the character of God. God is good and only God is good. Notice the second thing, and that is the commandments of God that Jesus refers to. This is in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And Jesus said to him, keep the commandments. And then, of course, the, the rich young ruler responds, which ones? Which ones? And so Jesus lists them. Now, now look at the list. and Beginning with verse 18 and verses 18 and 19 our Lord lists the commandments that he says to him you ought to keep. You, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery, uh, uh, murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not uh, steal. You shall not uh, bear false witness. Honor your father and your, and your mother. And, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And now it's interesting that these commandments that Jesus refers to are all what we call the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the commandments have to do with our relationship to God. There's only one God. You shouldn't make any other image, honor His name, and so forth. So the first of the the Ten Commandments, the first four of them have to do with our relationship with God. These last ones have to do with our relationship to one another. We'll get to the truth of this in just a moment as to why. But did you catch these commandments of all that Jesus listed? There's one He left out. Which one was it? It was a sin of covetousness. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor, not covet his house, not covet his wife, not covet his um, servants. Anything that belongs to your neighbor, you're not to covet it. Well, what was the sin of this young man? He said, I've kept all of these. Yes, perhaps he did. And if he did, hey, that's commendable. But, The sin of covetousness. Look at it, if you would please, in verse 25. Well, let me go back up here. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, but what did he hear? Well, go back to 20. I'll get it right in a minute. Here in verse 21, he he asked him, "What what am I lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, one translation has perfect. Go and sell your what? Your possessions. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away grieving for what? He was one who owned much possessions. And uh, so covetousness, we don't, we don't normally talk about when we commit sin. We say, oh, I lie, or I take in the Lord's name in vain, or I haven't honored my mother or my father. And we very seldom, rarely ever get down to that last commandment. And yet all of us at some point in the time or a time and in some way, we're all guilty of covetousness. That is desiring what somebody else has. I wish I had that. I wish I had this. I wish I could do that. I wish I could be like them. I wish I could live in a house like they have, drive a car like they have, have a job like they have, be well known in the community in the world as they do. And we covet what other people have. That's what this young man, he had possessions and that's what He worshiped. that was His God. That's why he was so grieved. You see, our Lord, in fact, it says uh, that our Lord looked at Him and saw what His greatest sin was. And so these commandments do all of these things. I ask you, have, have you kept these commandments that have, have you done these things? You, you've not uh, committed murder? I don't think anybody in here has. You've not committed adultery. It's, Hopefully not. You've not stolen anything. Maybe if you could say all these things, great. But there is some sin in your life that we're all guilty of because the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and grace. So we may not be guilty of covetousness, but there's some other sin of which we are guilty. We all fall short of God's glory. There are none righteous. No, not one. And if I think this young man had the... uh, misconception that if I could just keep the commandments, I I could have eternal life. Well, that's true. If you, if you could keep not just one or two of them in order to get eternal life by obeying the law, you have to obey every single law God has laid down. There can't be just one half of one law that you disobeyed. You have to be obedient to Every single law God has laid down, obedient to it, never disobeying it, never breaking it, not even in thought as well as action and word. And the problem is there's not a single human being who's capable of doing that. None of us are righteous. None of us are right with God And when we attempt to get right with God by obeying his laws, we're falling short of it. And we're just as guilty as this young man who thought that he could get life by obeying the commandments. And the Bible tells us very clearly in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans that what the law could not do and that they are weak in the flesh, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, and accomplished by the fulfilling of the law and becoming the supreme sacrifice, the salvation that we so desperately yearn and search for. So this young man loved his money and his possessions. Number three, the compassion of Jesus. Look at it in, in Mark's gospel, chapter 10 and verse 21. It's Mark who includes this expression. Mark ten twenty-one says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Now, let's examine briefly the word looking. Looking at him. Jesus was looking at him. This this was not just a casual glance that Jesus gave at this young man. The word literally means an in-depth inspection. Uh, That that he just looked at, at this young man and he could see through his facade. He, he could look past his appearance and he could look upon the heart of this young man. And he knew, Jesus knew what was going on in the heart of this young man. He knew what his sin was. Jesus knew it was covetousness. That's why he purposely left it out as he listed those commandments because somehow it would drive home. The Holy Spirit would say, hey, there's something missing here. I'm covetous. I, I covet what other people have. I want wealth and fame and, 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 and money and possessions. And, and so Jesus looked at him. And he, you know, Jesus looks at you too. And he looks at me. We can put on a show for everybody. We can come to church and be dressed nice and act nice and talk nice and give the appearance that everything's all right. And Jesus knows deep down inside we're all as rotten as we can be. We're all sinners. We all are. Those in the balcony here, those in the lower auditorium, we're all out in the world. and There's not a single righteous person in the entire world that can meet the demands of Almighty God. And Jesus knows that over in the second chapter of the Gospel of John, when Jesus was at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, it says that our Lord, when he looked at the people, he didn't need anybody to testify and be a witness for somebody else. Why? Because he knew what was in man. And Jesus knows what's in you as well. And what is his response? Hate? Rejection? No, he loves you. He looked in the inside of this young man at his heart and it says Jesus felt a love for him. Now, isn't that encouraging to know that in spite of who we are and what we've said or what we may have done, in spite of our sins, our shortcomings, that Jesus loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he demonstrated, as, as uh, <coughs> William Barclay says in his commentator comment, uh, commentaries, He said, Jesus did not come into the world and die on the cross in order to convince the Father that he ought to love us. Jesus came into the world and died on the cross to demonstrate how much God does love us. How much does God love us? Jesus stretched his arms out and let them be nailed to a cross. And he says, God loves you this much, this much that I would die for you. And so Jesus felt compassion for this young man. Notice a fourth thing, and that is the conversion to God. This is found in Matthew 19, 21, where Jesus' response was, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give them to the poor. Now, now see, here's, here's another part. We, we just talk about his uh, uh, keeping the commandments. This young man's keeping the commandments, and Jesus listed these that he kept. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, but... You see, he didn't love his neighbor as himself. Why is that? Because what did Jesus say to him? Take your money, your wealth, your property, sell it. Give the money to the poor. What? Distribute it to the poor. Do you remember what Jesus said, the second greatest commandment of all, when he was asked, summarize all of the law into two commandments. First one, love God with all of your being. Mind, heart, soul, body. Love God. That's the first commandment. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this young man did not want to take his possessions and sell them and distribute it to the poor. Because he had great possessions. He was a wealthy young man. And he loved his wealth more than he loved his neighbor. Because he wasn't about to distribute it and share it with anybody. And so he walked away. Walked away. Real salvation demands repentance and faith. Now, Jesus is not, he, now Jesus said to this young man, sell your possessions and give them to the poor because that was what the young man's problem was. That doesn't mean everybody who has possessions ought to sell it and get poor and give it all to the other poor. Now there are a lot of rich people in the Bible. Abraham was a wealthy man, yet he was the father of the nations. Lydia was a seller of purple, a rich woman in whose church at Philippi, a house at Philippi, uh, became the church of, at, at the city of Philippi. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a wealthy man when Jesus died, brought a hundred pounds of, of uh, spices to, to use in, in anointing the body of Jesus. Well, a hundred pounds of spices was costly in, not only in our day, but in that day especially. Not everybody could afford that. Zacchaeus, the wee little man who was up in the tree, was a wealthy man. And when he came down, uh, Jesus went to to his house. I'd love to have known what the conversation was between Jesus and Zacchaeus. Because when it was all over with, what did Zacchaeus say? I know I've defrauded a lot of people. So I'm going to pay back four times as much as I've taken from them. And if I need to do more, I will. Jesus said, salvation has come to your house this day. So it's not just covetousness. What is your sin? Lying? Your sin, selfishness? Is your sin uh, using the Lord's name in vain? Is it lusting after somebody? Uh, Is it just whatever? It doesn't have to be having possessions. It could be whatever stands between you and God is your God. And that is what you worship. And so Jesus said, you've got to deal with that. Self, some of us are so selfish and so egotistical, we suffer from the narcissistic complex, me, myself, and I, and nobody else matters. And you've got to die to yourself in order to follow Jesus. And so here's this invitation. You must be converted, you must repent. In Mark's gospel, the 10th chapter and verse 24, the Bible says of this young man that he went away grieved. Because he had put a, 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 a trust, his trust was in his possessions. What what was the man depending on? Trust. He trusted his wealth. He put his faith in his possessions. We don't know whatever became of this young man. Some people suggest, and it's only a suggestion, there's no way of proving it. Jesus told another parable about a rich fool. A rich man who had a, a big barns and, and that harvest time he had a a bumper crop in fact his crop his harvest was so large that he didn't have enough room to store what he was harvesting so he said what am I gonna do oh I know I'll tear down my barns I'll build bigger barns and that way I'll have uh, plenty of room to store all of my harvest and then I can eat drink and be merry and what does God say of him he God called him a fool you're a fool thinking that, that you're all right and, you, and you've got all of this wealth and all these possessions stored up, he said, tonight your soul is going to be qu- required of you. Then to whom shall all of these things belong? And some people think, well, this, this could have been the story of how this rich young ruler turns out, that he just spends the rest of his life accumulating everything that he gets. And fails to realize that the very night that he lays his head down on the bed could be his very last night. And God says, you are a fool for storing up things on this earth and not making sure that you have a reservation in heaven. And so there is this conversion that must be made to Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll cling to one and reject the other or you'll love one and you'll hate the other. And many translations uh, use the word there to master uh, money. Mammon uh, is reference to money and possessions. Billy Graham has just recently published a brand new book entitled Where I Am. And he makes reference to this rich young ruler at one part of it. This is what he says. This young man stood before Jesus having riches, rank, and religion, but he did not see himself as a sinner He couldn't fathom the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By his own admission, he did not fit into this category. Though he had humbled himself by kneeling at Jesus' feet, his heart did not bow. And there's a difference from kneeling with your knees and your legs and your heart. He said his knees uh, knelt, but his heart did not. He wanted the forever life, but not the faithful life. Jesus promised him the very thing that he said he wanted most, eternal life, but could not accept at the expense of his treasure. He wanted both. He wanted it his way. And then Dr. Graham says, Jesus was not against the man keeping his money. Jesus was against the money keeping the man from following him. This young man trusted more in his riches than in Jesus' word and therefore rejected our Lord's answer. That's a neat way of expressing it. He wasn't against him keeping the money. He was against the money keeping him. The fifth one has to do with the commitment to God. The commitment is found in the words that Jesus said, come and follow me. So the rich young ruler had to make a decision. This was Jesus' answer to the rich young man's question. He asked the question, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus said, come follow me. That was his answer. Get rid of that which stands between yourself and me. Give that away and come follow me. That's what being a Christian is. It's following the Lord. It's letting him to be the Lord and the master of your life. And so here's a young man. He's on the verge of making a decision. Imagine with me for a moment, heaven. And there in heaven, you have the recording angel sitting at the table with his pen ready to write down what the response of this rich young man was going to be. The rich young ruler bit his lip. Prespiration broke out on his brow. The angels were looking down to see what he would do. And the demons of hell began to whisper in his ears, don't be a fool, you deserve all that you've got. Don't give it up, don't give in. And so there he stands before the Lord. And what a moment, a moment of decision. And verse 22 says, but when the young man heard what Jesus said, he went away grieving, grieving. The Greek word for grieving literally translated means it's a picture of a storm cloud gathering. So here is a young man standing in the presence of the light of the world who is Jesus. And he turns and walks away into the darkness of a storm never to be heard of again, damned for an eternal hell. But notice the sixth and final thing that I'm trying to make this morning is the capability of God. Because when Jesus said to his disciples, how difficult and how hard it is for a man to enter the, who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, their immediate question was then, is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And what was our Lord's response? Well, (coughs) excuse me, looking uh, at at them, Jesus said to them, (coughs) with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He didn't say that it was impossible. He just said, it's difficult. It's hard. You've got to do what Jesus said to this young man. I must be first in your life, not your possession you put your possessions first, you put something else first ahead of God, then it's going to be very difficult and impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be willing to place those to the side and put Jesus Christ first in your life. Let him be the king of kings and the Lord and Lord of your life. And in this case, this rich ruler's wealth robbed him of God's greatest blessing, eternal life. What he wanted more than anything else Other than his possessions. What a choice. He had treasure on earth, but he was not rich toward God. He was convicted, but he was not converted. He was not far from the kingdom, but he stepped back into the darkness of a selfish life. He preferred things which are seen and temporal, but rejected the things which are not seen and eternal. Here is a young man. He came to the right person. He came at the right time. He came at the right attitude. He asked the right question. He received the right answer, but he did the wrong thing. He did the wrong thing. He turned away from Jesus. Do you see yourself in the rich young ruler? As I said earlier, Jesus looked at this young man and inspected him to the very core of his being. Jesus is doing the same thing to you today. He knows all about you. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, what you think before you think it, where you go before you go. And why? The reason behind all of it. He doesn't need anybody to stand. I don't need to stand up here and say to the Lord Jesus, well, I know this person or that person, let me tell you about him. He knows about you already. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he looks into your being and he does so with compassion. He loves you. The psalmist says, search me, O God, search me. Just put me under your divine x-ray and reveal everything that's there. And Holy Spirit of God, convict me that I might turn from my sins, recognizing and confessing that you are the holy living God who is good and only you are good. And I'm depending on you. For eternal life. So, what is it this morning that stands between you and Christ? What keeps you from Jesus if you've never come to Him? If you want to receive and enter into eternal life, you must be willing to put Jesus first. May we bow together. an important question that this young man asked of our Lord what must I do to enter heaven have eternal life and Jesus gave him the only accurate correct answer that there is to such a question and that is you must put your faith and trust in him give up that which stands between you and the Lord whatever it may be which is just another way of saying repent of your sins, turn from your sins, give up your sins, and turn to Jesus and become his disciple, a student of our Lord's, to follow him the rest of the days of your life so that when it comes time for you to travel down the path, the shadow of the darkness of death, you will fear no evil for you'll be entered right into the presence of God Almighty himself. So if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, then, and you're interested in receiving eternal life, then say a prayer somewhat like this. Lord Jesus, I know that you are not just a man, that you are God in the flesh, and that you came into this world and died for me. And as I turn from my sins, I turn to you, Lord Jesus. And I'm asking you to come into my life. I accept you as my Savior and my Lord. Please forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. And thank you for the gift of eternal life that I could never earn or deserve. I accept it as a gift from you because of what you have done for me on Calvary. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. And having said a prayer like that, then welcome to the kingdom of God. Now, if you would please look at it this way, if God has spoken to your heart today, and if you've never before trusted Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, we give an invitation. It's not in order to make it difficult for you or to embarrass you in any way whatsoever. Jesus said, confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. It's not the only way, but it is one of many ways that we have of letting other people know of our decision to trust Christ and to follow Him. So that's why we give an invitation at the end of our services. And so if you're here today and you have trusted Christ uh, this morning or at some other time in your life and you've never made it public, I'll be here at the front to receive you. If you are a Christian and uh, you're looking for a church home, you feel this is where God wants you to come and place your life and your membership, certainly we would welcome you in the name of Christ. If there's some other decision that you have to make, I'll be here at the front. If I'm busy, one of our other uh, pastors, uh, Bobby, our associate pastor, will be here to help as well. Uh, So Andre's going to lead us. Let's all stand and as we sing uh, and God's Holy Spirit leads you, you come please.